Welcome to the Voices of Aging podcast, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, or ASIC, a student-led collaborative organization for the study of aging at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we feature guests working in different aging-related areas, and they share their experiences and wisdom. We release two episodes every month, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to learn more about aging every time you hit play. This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Andrew Spears. Dr. Spears is an associate professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario. The focus of his research is the biomechanics of disease processes in the musculoskeletal system, with a particular focus on cartilage and osteoarthritis. Hi, Dr. Spears. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. So I know I gave you kind of a very brief introduction with your title there. We would love to hear more about your background and how you um, entered this field. Uh, okay, well, I've, uh, I've trained as a mechanical engineer, um, but when I was uh, an undergraduate, I had the opportunity to work with one of my professors uh, who did research in biomechanics, specifically of uh, hand and wrist function in uh, elderly patients and those that have arthritis. And uh, I enjoyed that work. And then through that job, uh, that led to contacts with some other research groups where I then uh, found uh, work in the research environment, academic research environment, and then I went on and did um, a master's and a PhD in both in mechanical engineering, but with a sort of a biomechanical focus. Wonderful. Um, thank you for sharing. And what are some of your current projects or endeavors that you're working on? Uh, so my main research focus is on the uh, really the mechanical causes of osteoarthritis, so the wear and tear in the joint. There are some deformities in the joint, so um, you know, uh, incongruities in, in the joint that can uh, are felt to overload the cartilage, leading to uh, degeneration. And it, it's not just a mechanical process; it kind of kicks off some biochemical processes, cellular processes as well that probably contribute to it. But that's really the main focus. So understanding. You know, at the macroscopic scale, human movement uh, with these joint deformities and how that you know, loads the, the tissues inside the joint leading to degeneration. Tell us more about osteoarthritis. Not all of our listeners may be familiar with what that really means. So um, if you could define it and then how prevalent is it? I would imagine pretty prevalent. Most of us have probably known someone who's um, experienced it. Uh, but what are your, what's your take on that? Sure. Um, it's actually pretty hard to pin down a very precise definition of osteoarthritis. The, the thinking now is it's, it's sort of a family of diseases that kind of look the same in the end, but it's characterized by changes in the uh, composition of the tissue, breakdown of the tissue. So cartilage itself is made up of you know it's about eighty percent water, and then uh, by weight, and then the other twenty percent are these large proteins, and that uh, they sort of make this mesh that helps hold on to the water, but then that mesh starts to break down and some of the components are lost. Um, and so, uh, you know, the cartilage can tear, it can get pulled away from the bone. There are changes in the in the bone underneath the cartilage as well um, that uh, will 
probably not really appreciated for a long time, but they may have actually some contribution to the process. But really, in the end stage, these patients, you know, they experience a lot of pain. It really impairs the mobility. Uh, in some cases, you know, when the surgeon goes in to operate, they see that the, the cartilage is completely worn down, uh, and so they end up with bone-on-bone uh, -bone contact, um, which is probably what causes the pain. And it is actually difficult to, to understand where the pain actually comes from because the, the cartilage itself has no nerves in it. So you know, it tends to be later stages where the patient starts to feel pain and goes to the doctor and uh, asks, what's wrong with my joint? Why am I feeling so much pain? So in terms of prevalence, I know the number is sort of in Canada and in the United States. In the United States, it's, a, it's somewhere around 30 million, 35 million uh, adults uh, have osteoarthritis. You know, it does tend to affect older people because it's been more wear and tear on their joints over their lifetime. In Canada, it's, it's uh, not quite 4 million, but you know, we only have a tenth of the population of the United States. Uh, so it, it actually represents 14% uh, of the population over uh, 20 years old. And so, you know, that right now, the, really the only treatment is to give them a joint replacement. You know, you can, you can sort of treat the symptoms, but that's, there's nothing that really stops the disease. There's no cure for the disease right now. Yeah, that makes sense. And so once, once the joint gets painful enough or damaged enough, um, it's time to get in there and replace it. So in terms of thinking about those current surgical techniques, I would imagine some of your work kind of relates to um, potentially looking at how we can streamline that process or provide better surgical care with joint replacements. Is that correct? Um, well, I mean, if I go back to sort of early in my biomechanics career, I did do some uh, evaluation of how hip implants uh, and other implants performed in sort of stimulated uh, conditions and, uh, you know, I can really be sort of accepted by the issue. Uh, the, sorry, the patient's bone structures. But even now, hip implants, you know, they, they say, well, a good one might last 20 years, which, you know, if you're putting that in an 85-year-old, fine, that's probably long enough. But now, younger and younger patients are getting them because it has been quite successful surgery, and it does, in most cases, relieve their pain and restore their mobility. So now if you're putting in a 50-year-old, you say, well, my last 20 years, well, they're still seven years old when that uh, implant wears out. But it's not just a question of the, um, of the lasting 20 years because these patients tend to be younger, they're, they tend to be heavier, they tend to be more active. And that just puts more um, stresses on the implant, um, more uh, wear processes due to those higher forces on the bearing surface itself, and they just wear out faster. And so... Um, you know, without any particular numbers, they, they do tend to need a, another implant sooner. And then that second implant will not work as quite as well as the first one. And so you just kind of get into this downward spiral. So we want to try and understand what will make them work better. And then, you know, if, if we also consider knee replacements, it's actually, a, it's, uh, I would say, a more technically challenging surgery. Not, I'm not a surgeon myself, but I've, I've seen the surgeries. And the, the trick with the knee replacements is there's actually two contact surfaces. And we want to try and get the, the force equal between those two contact surfaces. Otherwise, you know, if it's kind of shifted more towards one side than the other, then that side is more likely to wear out more quickly. And so then with the knee, we also rely on soft tissues to stabilize the joint more uh, than in the hip. 
And you've got to get just the right tension on those tissues. The surgeon has to get the right tension on all of those tissues. Otherwise, you get knee laxity and the patient feels uncomfortable. Uh, it doesn't feel stable. Or they're too tight and it's squeezing the joint and it wears out faster. So we want to try and uh, evaluate different you know, implant designs and different surgical techniques, maybe uh, you know, surgical instruments that can help guide and balance all of these things to improve longevity of the implant. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I know this isn't necessarily your primary area of work, um, but I understand out of at least your institution, there's some work being done in this area about robotic arms. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is a robotic arm. Uh, it's got a, a few hinge, hinges on it or hinge joints. Um, you know, the, the primary use of these robotic arms would be in a manufacturing facility like an auto plant. Um, so these are large uh, robots. Uh, they can apply a lot of force, uh, but we can also move them about in three dimensions and, and rotate it around so that we can actually, you know, grab onto this implant and, and uh, you know, simulated anatomy, let's say, and move the implant through its kind of normal motions that to simulate the patient walking around or going upstairs or whatever the activity might be and also apply the forces. And the, the amount of forces are actually quite high. So when we walk around, um, we usually put a force of about two and a half times our own body weight on the hip, hip joint and the knee joint. And this has actually been measured by uh, a group in uh, Berlin, actually, that published this. And so the loads can be quite high, and probably higher than um, most people would, would guess. So we have to be able to apply a lot of these forces while doing these you know, uh, rotations and, and translations and uh, uh, And so these these issues that I've talked about in terms of balancing soft tissue structures and trying to evaluate uh, where on these implant uh, components, these are the kinds of things that we want to simulate with the robotic arm. And to give you an idea of the size of it, it can it, if we stretch it out straight, it can stand about nine feet tall, uh, and it can apply forces of uh, about 800 pounds. Wow. Okay. That is big. Um, and it sounds like the way this research will be applied is sort of looking at how long implants can potentially last for the average um, surgical candidate. Yeah. So we probably wouldn't try to simulate the, the entire lifespan of the implant, right? Because if you think, well, um, if, the, if the implant's going to last 20 years, we take about a million steps every year. You know, it's sort of an average activity level. Some people have to do more, some people have to do less. So we're not going to um, apply these loads for 8 million, 20 million cycles. Uh, but what we can do is put in other sensors to understand how we're putting uh, you know, different loads on different uh, regions of the implant. Uh, so pressure sensors, for example, or load sensors, uh, or um, sensors that can uh, measure how much the ligaments are deformed, and that gives us an idea of you know, how tight or lax those ligaments are, which also contributes to the stability and longevity of the implant. Very cool. Um, will this be informative at all in terms of like angles in which the implant is placed, like the best positioning of implants? Yeah, that's the idea. Um, so that we can, uh, you know, we can put the implant in different positions and measure these different um, parts of the implant, you know, how much force is on one side of the knee implant versus the other uh, side, 
measure how tight those uh, uh, those ligaments are, uh, the collateral ligaments of the uh, ones that I'm talking about on the sides of the knee. And then we can inform surgeons about you know how precise is, is really good enough, and how accurate is they need to be to uh, sort of improve longevity. Uh, we call it clinical performance of these implants because ultimately we want these patients to um, be able to get back to their normal daily lives and daily activities that they enjoy doing. That's incredible. Are you also comparing different materials at all? Uh, not specifically, but it's something that we certainly could do. So the, when I talked about the uh, implant wearing out, the bearing surface is usually a hard metal on one side. Uh, cobalt chrome is quite common, although there's you know, various different coatings and surface modifications that they can apply to that. But the other side is ultra-high molecular polyethylene. And it's usually the polyethylene is the softest component of that. It's very good at low friction and as a bearing surface, but it does wear out over time. And manufacturers have recently started applying uh, chemical treatment that's called cross-linking. And that's actually really improved the wear characteristics of the polyethylene, but we could certainly evaluate other materials as well, or, you know, compare the differences between the different cross um, polyethylene and how sensitive the those are to various different, you know, surgical techniques or alignment. Where do you see work in the field going in the future? Not necessarily related to um, the robotic arm, although it, it could be. Um, what are kind of some further and future applications that you see or where, what, what areas need additional research? Well, I think if we go far enough into the future, it's going to be tissue engineering and actually replacing the cartilage uh, with uh, engineered cartilage, really, is, I think is where it's going to go ultimately. Whether that happens in my lifetime, I don't know, um, it, but it's certainly a very active area of research. Um, you know, we can, in a lab, uh, recreate cartilage tissue, but it's a very crude approximation. It's usually nowhere near uh, strong enough or stiff enough or durable enough to put in the body. Uh, you know, if we put it in the body and the patient gets up and then you start moving about and putting these loads or forces of two and a half times their body weight, it would just wear off very, very rapidly. So there certainly needs to be more work done in the lab to make these things more durable that we can actually make use of them. There's also other strategies to try and identify um, early signs of degeneration um, to try and save joints so the natural tissue can survive. Cartilage has a very limited healing capacity, although there are, um, you know, reports that suggest it can heal to a very limited extent. Uh, but with these, you know, as I said with earlier on, patients don't feel pain until essentially the cartilage is really severely worn out. But if we can find sort of screening techniques to identify some of these joint deformities that put them at high risk, you know, then, you know, the doctor can keep So, what we want to do is develop screening techniques where we could identify patients that are at risk of degeneration. So patients that have some of these joint deformities that have a strong relation or strong correlation with osteoarthritis or strong association with uh, osteoarthritis, and maybe develop screening techniques that 
you know, a primary care provider, a family doctor could do on the patient, maybe a physiotherapist could do on a patient and say, well, this person is at higher risk of developing degeneration, then they could be monitored more closely. Um, they could be given advice to maybe modify activities. You know, there are, uh, with these joint deformities in the hip, it's called, known as hip impingement or femoropatular impingement. And it, these deformities occur more often in, um, in very competitive athletes, especially if they've been uh, competitive at younger ages, it seems. And so the, the doctor or physiotherapist could give the opportunity to say, well, you know, if you change your activities, if you give up the sport, they may not want to, but at least they're aware, they have the, that choice. If you give up that sport, maybe you won't get degeneration. Uh, or, um, you know, maybe change to a different sport or uh, change the way you do a particular activity. Then, you know, maybe you save, save more joints and avoid surgery. Yeah, that's so important. And I love that idea of early intervention and prevention because so much of the morbidity and costs associated with osteoarthritis um, arise because the interventions are happening later, as you've discussed. Um, so I think that's really important and a really interesting direction to go for future work. Um, as we wrap up here, um, any kind of final comments that you'd like to make or um, some many of our listeners are students. If somebody wants to learn more, do you have any websites or anything you could direct them to? Um, well, there's the, the various different arthritis societies. Um, uh, you know, I, I do some work with the Canadian Arthritis Society. Um, there's um, the Arthritis Society of the United States. They would have all kinds of information about that. Uh, if they're interested in orthopedics in general, there's the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. They have all kinds of information. Uh, that's aaos.org. Uh, they have lots of information on their website about uh, research and about uh, the orthopedic field in general. Uh, so that's probably a good place to start. Wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Dr. Spears. This has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Follow Voices of Aging and ASIC on social media for more information about the episodes and guests from the podcast and to learn more about us as a student group. See you next time.